Looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dawaskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dawaskin. All right. Thank you, Mr. Phoenix, for the amazing introduction. That was amazing. Welcome, everyone, to episode... 22. That's right. Episode 22. I-22. If you had I-22 on the Jeff Dwoskin Show bingo card, that's two ducks a quacking. Quack, quack. And you have got that square covered. (laughs) Oh, man. One of my first introductions to entertainment was going on a cruise with my family and the cruise directors doing bingo and doing all the funny things when they would read bingo names. I-22, two ducks are quacking, quack, quack. Anyway, welcome to episode 22. We're going to do it. All right, well, hey, it turns out that I'm huge in France. That's right. I charted in France on the comedy interview Chartable Charts for Apple Podcasts. So thank you. I'm huge in France, me and Jerry Lewis. That is great company. It reminds me of this Steve Barton bit that I used to love. He'd be like, oof means egg, and chapeau means hat. It's like those French have a different word for everything. <laughs> anyway, uh, excuse my horrible impression. But the thank you, France. Thank you, France. And come on, U.S., Canada, U.K., come on, you guys, the rest of the world. Come on, step it up. Listen to the Jeff Dwoskin Show as much as France. Huge in France, my new tagline. Speaking of which, I would love if you all subscribed on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell all your friends, tweet about me, Facebook about me, Gram about me, TikTok about me. Come on, help spread the word of the Jeff Duoskin Show. You can do it. You can do it. You can do two things that I know you can do. You can prevent forest fires. And two, I know you can help spread the word of the Jeff Duoskin Show. Thank you. So for episode 22, special episode, I've got my friend and actress and just an amazing person. Erin Cummings is on the show. Yeah, yeah. You know her from Spartacus, Detroit 187. She was on Star Trek Enterprise, Cold Case, Mad Men, everywhere, everywhere. She's amazing. And we're going to talk, and you're going to love it. You're going to love it. I do want to give a quick shout-out to a few podcasts, a Success Breeds Success podcast, Psychedelic podcast, Scene Snobs podcast, Spooky podcast. It all had me as a guest recently. Had a great time on their podcast. So definitely check those shows out as well. Good times all around. Get into the podcast world, folks. And now a word from our sponsor. And I've gotten letters and notes and comments and tweets from past sponsors that just are loving how much you guys support them. You support them. You're supporting the Jeff Duoskin Show. It's how we keep the lights on. This week's sponsor, Brooms. Got a dustpan? Tired of just simply picking dust up with your hand? Well, great news. Now you can get a broom. Brooms go great with dustpans. Where can you use a broom? Anywhere there's a floor. Do you have a room with a floor? Then you need a broom. Dust happens, folks. And be prepared with a broom. All right. Definitely a great, great product to have. I've got a broom myself. If you don't have one, check one out. I don't know if you have floors, but if you have rooms with floors, you definitely need a broom. Grab one of those. Dustpans are great, too. And together... You know, get the broom. The dustpan's not really the sponsor. The broom just makes me mention the dustpan. So really, get a broom, 
tweet me. Let me know how it goes. And I think you're going to enjoy. You're going to enjoy things. Anyway, so support the sponsor. Get a broom. It helps us keep the lights on. Tell them Jeff Duoskin from the Jeff Duoskin Show sent you. And now it's time for Social Media Tip. All right. This is the part of the show where I just kind of share something about social media with you. And then you can Google it and figure out how to do it yourself. One thing, okay, on LinkedIn, they have LinkedIn now has stories just like Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook. I've tried it and I had like three views. Not impressed. I've got thousands of followers on LinkedIn. So I don't know if people are looking at LinkedIn stories just yet, but I'm going to be there when they do. So a more useful tip for you this week, something that I realized I needed to do and hadn't done is clean up your bios and go look at like all the about settings in your Twitter and your Facebook and your Instagram. Because if it's been a while, you might be like, wait a minute, I haven't had that phone number since 2016. What up? Anyway, so do that. I did that and I realized, oh yeah, I had a lot of things wrong. So I had to fix that. So definitely do some spring cleaning. (laughs) You don't need a broom to fix your bio, but it doesn't hurt to buy a broom and support our sponsor. Anyway, but my point is, go check your bio and just make sure everything's the way you want because it may not be how you remember. And that's the social media team. All right, well, I am so excited for this interview. For you guys to hear my chat with Erin Cummings, she's so amazing. She was the founder of Mittens for Detroit. She's a fabulous actress. You may have heard uh, Jackie, the joke man, and I talking, and he mentioned Aaron and the event we all did together. Real special times. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's my conversation with Aaron Cummings. All right. We are here with actress Aaron Cummings, star of Bitch Slap, Spartacus, Detroit 187, Pan Am, and a million other awesome stuff. How you doing, Aaron? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, the fun walk down memory lane of some of my some of my projects that all got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> they were all amazing while you were a part of it. You know what my my agent uh, he always used to say: you have like one of the most enviable resumes in Hollywood because you have so many television shows on your resume, but nobody realizes that one of the reasons why you have so many projects is because they all get canceled canceled so quickly <laughs> that you just get to jump from one to the another to the another. You know, I'm like, well, it would be nice financially if I could just get on one show that would last for five years. That might be pretty cool. But hey, I'll take it. At least I keep working. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm happy that I get to keep working. Um, that that right there is an honor and a blessing for sure. So I, I I jest, but I certainly don't mean to come off as complaining. I'm very fortunate. No, you got a, a great resume. I think a lot of people would kill for it. Kill for it. <laughs> uh, one person almost seemed like she wanted to. I sat down at a at an audition. It's funny because like I feel like actors always have that you know that one person that always seems to get every job that they go up for and they're like oh if only so-and-so wasn't you know wasn't going to be auditioning for this then it would be my job and I was auditioning for this film and this I sat down on a bench next to this next to this woman about my age and she looked at me and she goes you're Aaron Cummings aren't you and I was like oh god like yeah I I guess that's a bad thing and she said every single job that I think I'm gonna get you end up booking it so I'm just gonna go ahead and leave and I was like no 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 I'm totally unprepared for this I promise I'm not gonna get this job and I didn't so I really hope that she did 
But that was like a kind of an awkward but funny encounter. I mean, at least she was honest. I appreciated that. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a comedian that felt that way about me here in Detroit, but it wasn't as probably stocky as it sounds like yours might have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, what do you mean? Was he saying you get more laughs than I do? Or was he like, you always get into the rooms that I want to get on? Or like, what, what was what was it? Was, it was like I had, you know, comedians always think that the other person has whatever they have, despite the fact their own ability. So it's like the fact that I would have something meant he didn't. Oh, and, right. It's not as fine. I, like in an acting job, I guess. Yes, there's one. If there's one role, one person gets it. But, you know, when you're just working clubs, it's kind of sad. I mean, there's there's 10 other clubs any other night. That, right. Exactly. You know. And and you all, you know, you you get the spot that you get and you get the amount of minutes that you get and you know you get the laughs that you get based on whether or not your material is good and whether or not you are effective at communicating it you know so that's kind of that's kind of strange but I mean there's I also um I did I ever tell you about how I tried to do stand-up comedy I would love to hear how you tried to do stand-up comedy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I will say this. I have a deep, deep amount of um, appreciation for stand-up comedians, having tried my hand at it like very briefly. I did this movie many years ago uh, called Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins. Don't look for me because my part was completely cut out of it. But I remember, you know, I, I did the audition, I got the role. And then Malcolm Lee, who is Spike Lee's cousin, he was directing the film. And I was just he I had a, a work session with him. And I, I didn't know what a work session was. I was like, all right, cool. I, I'll just go along for the ride. And I was I didn't prepare anything. I kind of just showed up. And the film was starring Martin Lawrence, Mike Epps, Monique, Cedric the Entertainer, Avion Crockett, and James Earl Jones, and just a whole bunch of other people. And I remember I got into my my work session, and he goes, all right, well, cool. Just, you know, show me what you got. And I froze. I said, what do you mean, show me what I've got? And he said, well, yeah, you know, just like improv some stuff that your character would do. Well, that was already a bit tricky because my character was supposed to be a white girl who is obsessed with black people and obsessed with black culture. And so does all these things to try to emulate black culture. And it's one thing when a black writer writes things for you as a white actor to then portray. It's a very different thing when me, just a white girl, just goes in and decides to quote, you know, improv what like a white person obsessed with black people would do to try to emulate black people in front of a black director. I was like, I don't feel comfortable with this. This is like super, um, and I, and, but I didn't want to say that because I didn't want to sound like I was unprofessional or not, you know, able to do whatever, you know, was being asked of me in my job. It was just so uncomfortable. And I really did not know like what the line of, funny versus just downright offensive that would get me fired and a meeting with HR. <laughs> like I was just like, I don't know what to do here. And so I kind of, I, I think I pretty much screwed that 
that pretty bad. Um, and I remember uh, like walking out of the room and Cedric the Entertainer was going in right after me and he was like, oh, hey, what's up? I'm Cedric. And I was like, I just want to bury my head in the sand right now. Thankfully, when we got to set, I ended up being able to, you know, do it, you know, pull some things out of my hat. But I also had Martin Lawrence right next to me, you know, going, oh, hey, try this. Oh, hey, try that, you know, feeding me lines. So I was like, okay, cool. As long as you, the star of the movie, and also a black person are telling me what to say, and I'm not like just being an offensive, horrible, terrible white person. Then I will, I'll, I'll go along and I'll, I'll play ball. And so um, it ended up go- working out really well. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, here I am trying to do something that. I'm, is totally out of my wheelhouse. You know, as you know, almost everything that you've listed, pretty much everything you did list, was is is drama. That's sort of my what I'm what I do most of the time. And so I said, here I am working alongside these people who have excelled in this part of performance that I've never even attempted. So a friend of mine had recently taken a stand up comedy class, and I said, all right, sure, I'll take it as well. So I took the class, learned how to you know, construct a set, you know, how to tell a joke from the perspective of being a stand-up comedian, um, as far as storytelling and bringing the audience in and not just being like, oh, here, knock, knock, you know, dumb stuff that people or telling a funny story that really nobody thinks is funny except for you and your buddies from college. And so we did this set um, as, uh, you know, the, the class and there was a scout there who would always come and they'd try to find new people. And he came up to me and said, Hey, I'm a, you know, I work for the comedy store. Would you be interested in coming and doing a show? And I was like, Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. It'd be amazing. And of course, in my mind, I didn't, I'm thinking like my name in lights, I'm going to, it's going to be like, you know, uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld presents Aaron Cummings at the comedy store. You know, I didn't realize that it was like Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Uh, you know, like Aaron Cummings is one of 25 people who are not getting paid to do this, but really just want to get up on stage and tell the jokes. So I invited everybody. I mean, I must have invited 30 people. And you know how it goes. You know, you invite a ton of people and they're making a lot of money off of you. So you get to pick your spot. And I had really rehearsed my set. I was, I I, I was, I kind of think that I, I will, I, I'll pat myself on the back here. I kind of fucking nailed it. So if I do say so myself. I have and no doubt. No doubt. Was, I, I will say this, that first show Man, I, I'm pretty proud. I wish that I somebody had videotaped it to be able to actually have the proof that I did it. They said, oh, you should come back and, you know, do another show. And I was like, cool. So the next show, I figured, oh, well, stand-up comedy is so easy. I don't need to rehearse. I don't need to practice. Um, and you know what? I'm just going to invite, like, you know, two people that couldn't make it la- the, the last time. So instead of me being the fourth in line, which was where I chose to go the last time, I was, I think, number 21 in the lineup. And by the time I finally got up on stage, the only people that were still left in the room were the two people that I had invited and all of the people that had gotten over their drunk hump and were now in that angry, like they were past laughing drunk and they were now just angry drunk. And I got up on stage. I couldn't remember any of my set, people were booing and laughing and it was so mortifying. And I remember my friend that I had invited, who of course I had totally bragged about how awesome and funny I was and how everybody loved me. And I got off stage and she was like, 
so are you going to be doing that again? And I said, no, I think I'm good. I think I'm done with that. (laughs) It was definitely a humbling experience, but also a really great experience of the real, the, the realization that something that looks so easy when you're just sitting there eating your mozzarella sticks and, you know, drinking your Jack and diet, it looks so easy from the audience perspective. And it's so not. And I never, I never really realized how much work goes into not just the performance of it, but also the crafting of the jokes, the crafting of the story, and then bringing it back around. You know, I I really gained a totally new um, appreciation for stand-up. And that was actually years before I started uh, doing the comedy show for Mittens for Detroit, in which you and I met. So um, I I, I tip my hat to you, Jeff Dwoskin. You are very talented at what you do. And I have a deep admiration for you and your comrades. You are so sweet. And I just want to say, (laughs) why... I just want to say, while you were talking about that second show, all I wanted to do was reach across the internet and give you a hug because I <laughs> knew exactly, exactly, because I've been there so many times. Yeah. Everyone has. But see, that's and- the difference between you and me. You've been there so many times and you've continued to get up on that stage. And that is one of the one of, one of many reasons why I have such a deep amount of respect for comedians, because I know that pain. I have felt that pain. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I don't like this pain. I'm going to go and I like being in the audience. <laughs> so I, I think it says a lot about someone who can just go, I know it's like people who, uh, it's like people who are constantly, who, who get married multiple times. You know, some people see them as someone who can't commit. And I'm like, man, that person loves to be in love. They know how horrible a divorce is. And they're like, fuck it. I'm just go. I'm going in. I'm doing it again. I don't care. You know how much that can hurt the first time, but you're like, I'm willing to give it another shot, man. This time it's going to work. I appreciate people like that. People that don't give up. Got people a lot that of don't give up. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a little bit of it myself because I've certainly taken some hits as an actor, but uh, you know, it, 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 fortunately, when you fail as an actor, unless it's, and I, no, not fail, sorry, when you don't knock it out of the park as an actor, Unless it's on a stage, usually you just have to read about how bad you are on the internet. You don't actually have people heckling you right in front of your face. Do you read reviews? I used to. I used to, like, when I would, when I did, when I would do a a play, like, when I do theater, it's so hard not to read the reviews. I think because those are often written by people who at least have a dramaturge a dramaturgy degree or they have some sort of background in theater that makes their opinion valid i don't really read stuff online about tv or films because so many of the things online are just they're just some random person with a keyboard you know the keyboard warriors that you know, and, and also so often it doesn't even come down to performance. It comes down to someone's personal preference over whether or not they think my forehead is too big. And I just don't have any, I don't have any room for that. So um, I, I, I used to read them. And then when I realized, oh, people on the internet can be really mean. And a lot of times they're really dumb. So I'm just going to do my job and 
hopefully be able to have enough trust in the director and the people that I'm working with on the day who will be able to go, okay, yeah, that's, that's working or mm, that's, that's not working. And then in the meantime, just continue to work on my craft in classes. And, you know, thankfully I married an actor who is not afraid to work with me on projects, on auditions. He coaches me all the time. He puts me on tape for auditions and I do the same for him. And he's not afraid to be like, nope, nope, I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. Nope, that didn't work. That didn't work. So he, he kind of nails me to the wall on my performances. And, and I think it makes me a, a better actor for sure. It's good that you have that to bounce off of. I do want to say I speak for everyone. You have a wonderful forehead. You can, <laughs> you well, I'm glad you do so because it takes up, you know, a good four, third of my face. So if it wasn't good, then uh, I'd be in trouble. But I, I like it. It's just jealousy because you have to be pretty enough to carry a forehead and you do. So it's, it's well, just thank you. when they say that, it's just jealousy. Now I'm blushing. Now I'm that's, blushing. That's when people you. make fun of my forehead. That's, that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, so um, you mentioned uh, Mittens for Detroit. Yes. Um, and that's how we met back mm-hmm. in 2014. And so I just want everyone to know that Aaron Cummings has a heart of gold and when she was starring in Detroit 187, formed this amazing, amazing charity in Detroit because you fell in love with Detroit, right? I did. I fell so in love with Detroit. I was actually, my um, when I found out that I was moving to Detroit to do uh, Detroit 187, my mom said, oh, you have family in Detroit. You should call them. You know, the thing that moms do. I was like, I don't know those people. I'm not going to call some random strangers and force myself into their family. And so instead, my mom just gave them my phone number and they called me and forced me into their family on their own, which was actually great. Dr. George and Joyce Bloom, who live in Bloomfield Hills, Dr. George Bloom is a pediatrician, which it's crazy the number of people that I've spoken to that are like, oh my God, he was my pediatrician and now he's my kid's pediatrician. I mean, I know so many people that either had uh, George or his son, Bobby, or now even his granddaughter, Natalie Bloom, because they all three work at the same pediatrics office. Uh, anyway, they, my apartment wasn't ready when I first moved to Detroit. So they let me live with them for three weeks. And for three weeks, I had all of my meals with George and Joyce, who are who were at that point in their 70s, and all of their friends who were all septuagenarians who grew up in Detroit when it was, you know, the Paris of the Midwest. So my first introduction to Detroit, even though it was in 2010, and it was in a period of, I guess, transition, I really saw the city through their eyes and not only how beautiful it was, but how beautiful it could be again in so many ways. You know, I I looked at areas that some would see blight and I would see the remnants of the architecture that you know, were so stunning. And some of these buildings that that were boarded up at the time and go, wow, you can see the marble underneath that and what that must have looked like, how gorgeous. And then as time went on and these buildings became resurrected and restored, I was, it was really beautiful to be able to not just go to Detroit 
and fall in love with the city and the people, but to also through the seven years that I was running, you know, Mittens for Detroit, that I was operating as the founder and the president, really able to see so much of the city as it continued to grow and, um, and that was that was awesome. So, and and a lot of my friends that I'm still very close to. I mean, Grace Kiros, who's the third generation owner of American Coney Island, is one of my best friends. She was a bridesmaid in our wedding, um, and in fact, we we got married in South Bend, Indiana, at the um, on the campus of Notre Dame. So my husband is a is a Notre Dame graduate, and uh, we served Coney dogs. Um, as our midnight snack for everybody, if, you know, as people were leaving the reception, you know, there's always like a hamburger truck or something. Right, right, right. And so we had, so Grace was out there in her bridesmaid's dress <laughs> handing out conies. So like a fucking boss. So um, yeah, we the and and in fact, one of my first, one of our first trips away was uh, my husband, my now husband, when we were just dating at the time, came to Detroit with me and. Uh, went to a Tigers game, and we went to Slows, went to the DIA, and we just did we just did the big tour of Detroit. Stayed at um, the MGM. It was it was great. So Detroit will not only have a special place in my heart, but it's actually got a special place in our you know in our family. That's awesome. I know you, you mentioned American Coney, and I'm I'm embarrassed to say, well, not embarrassed, but like I'm a Lafayette Coney, and like you, speaking of Detroit, why though? Like, well, I, I because I think I grew up. Well, just to explain anyone listening, in Detroit, there's Lafayette Coney Island and American Coney Island. I believe that they're the same family, but at some point they split. They literally share a wall in Detroit. So anyone in Michigan is either hardcore Lafayette or hardcore American Coney Island. Uh, Coney Island is a hot dog with mustard, onions, and um, chili. Do you know everyone? That, that was the one thing growing up in Detroit, moving out. Like even my cousins in Cleveland didn't know what a Coney dog was. Nobody outside of Detroit yeah. knows what a Coney dog is. Well, can I can I give you can I give your listeners a little bit of the history of the entire Coney experience? Yeah, I would love that. So Grace's grandfather, who came over from Greece. And so he had a very, very, very long first and last name with lots and lots of consonants. And I can't pronounce either his first or his last name. Um, it was like Kyristophilopagus or something like that. Sorry, all the Greek listeners are cursing my name right now. I love you guys. So he came over from Greece and he was in New York and you know, it was this American dream his to come. He couldn't get work in New York and heard that there was a lot of work to be found in Detroit. So he went to Detroit, um, wasn't able to get a job, but he was able to get enough money together to serve, uh, to, to get a Coney cart. So he was selling, or sorry, a hot dog cart. So he was selling hot dogs out of his cart and he called it, um, and his dream when he came to America was to go to Coney Island, or I think he, maybe he went to Coney Island when he first got to America and was like, oh my God, this place is amazing. And so when he got to Detroit, he decided per his American dream to call his cart, his hot dog cart, American Coney Island. And that's how the, the term Coney Island came around. And he served his hot dogs with chili, as you said, mustard and chopped sweet onions. Those were the three ingredients that came on it. And as he continued to work, he continued to make more and more money. And then he eventually was able to buy a piece of the, or rent a piece of the property that's right there, right there on Lafayette at the, you know, in Campus Martius, um, where the 
plot where the, the restaurant still stands. And then the more money that he made, he was eventually able to expand into that point. So it now extends into the point, the very tip, which is why it has a sort of triangular shape. And then he reached out to his brother who was in Greece and he said, Hey, I've got a good thing going over here. Why don't you come out and I'll, you know, I'll hook you up with the spot right next door to ours and you can have your own Coney place. So then his brother came out and then as time went on, the two brothers passed their hot dog places down to their two sons who were obviously cousins. Then when they decided to pass it down, Grace's father, who was the second generation owner, passed it down to her. But then her uncle, instead of passing it down to one of his children, he sold it off to people that have nothing to do with the family, and they're not even Greek, and they're just like random, hey, we want to buy Lafayette Coney Island. American still uses the same hot dog casings that were created for them by Dearborn Sausage that they've been using in perpetuity, and they also have the exact same chili recipe. I don't know what's going on over at Lafayette, but it is not the same. I am diehard American, so I will, uh, I mean, if you want to have, you know, roaches crawling through, no, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, I, I, part of my love for, uh, for, for, for Grace as my sister is also vehemently fighting to the death anyone who tries to say that Lafayette is better. But I say it in jest. I'm just glad that people are going downtown and, and eating. I think I may give American another chance for you, Aaron, and for Grace, and for Grace. I didn't, your version of the story, way better than the one I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, what's really fun is that Grace has, um, Grace, my mom is such a huge fan of the Coney's that my, that Grace will send my mom her Coney kits, which is such a great thing to send any, you know, Detroiters or Michiganders who are living away from the state now, uh, you can just go and you can order a Coney kit. And that's what we do sometimes. And and anytime that my husband is getting a hankering for a Coney, then I'll just call up Grace and be like, hey, I need a kit. I need a kit. And she just sends it right over. It's great. I do think Lafayette doesn't use the hot dog that they used to anymore. So I think I think the, even the differentiation between the two, because that was the difference, was the casing. Right. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try American. When we would go down, I know some of my family would eat there cause they had salads and Lafayette mm-hmm. doesn't have salads. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, that was part of it. So sometimes we'd split. There was one show, I, I can't remember which food wars one it was where they actually did it in Detroit right there, Lafayette versus American. And I do believe, and I'm sure Grace could tell you this, they won. <laughs> they did. They've actually had yeah. two different Food Wars shows and American won both times. And of course, that they they always do the thing where they're like, the two families and Grace is like, you know, they do that for the TV show, but like the other people that own it aren't actually the families, but they'll, you know, so. To be honest, to be honest, I'm not even sure I, I like or felt better, uh, like I liked Lafayette better because I actually liked it better. I think maybe, yeah, I think if you're like, it's like Godfather 1 or 2, it's whichever one you're indoctrinated. Exactly, in whichever one you get introduced to first. And you have those memories. Like if you grew up as a kid that like after Tigers games, you know, your parents brought you to Lafayette to get a Coney, like obviously that's going to have that, you know, emotion, that sentimental resonance that Americans just not going to have. And like for me, I've never had a Coney at Lafayette because 
you know, Grace was one of my first friends. She helped me start Mittens for Detroit. If it weren't for her, I wouldn't even have started Mittens for Detroit probably, or wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten as far as I did. And so for me, it was just like, it was never a question. So yeah, we all have our ways of, of getting introduced. But it's it's uh, it's fun that it's even a conversation to be had because I'll meet people out here in LA that are Detroit people and inevitably they'll go American or Lafayette and then it just becomes this whole conversation that you know so true it's so true yeah it's a nice it's a nice connector it's our thing it's our thing the main difference I think between the two is like Lafayette's dirty and America's. <laughs> That's why I was about to make the roach joke, but I didn't because yeah. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go too. But but that is what I've heard is that Lafayette is like if you want to go, if you just want to get down and dirty, dark, darkly lit, dirty floors, grease, you know, dripping from the windows. Yeah, it, I, I'm sure that it's sanitary. It's just, but it's not. It's not like when you walk into American, it's it's clean like a restaurant would be clean. Right. Lafayette is a diner. It's a hardcore. Diner. Exactly. And I and there there is a certain appeal to that. I mean, I remember when I was in college, um, I was on the dance team and there was there was this place that was the definition of a greasy spoon. And they were only or open for breakfast and lunch because they catered to like the super, super blue collar, like, you know, guys that were working out on the roads. They, it was not the kind of place that you go for dinner. And it was definitely the kind of place where if you were one French fry away from a heart attack, you have eaten at this place a significant number of times. And there was this girl, Marsha, and she loved that place. I mean, she was country. You talk about country, this girl was country. And I could all, she would come to practice and we'd be like half an hour into it. And I'd be like, Marsha. And I think it was like Billy Bob's or something like that. It was like, or Bubba. It was one of those kind of places. I'd be like, Marsha, did you eat at Bubba's today? Because she would start sweating and I could smell like the onion rings seeping out of her pores. It was so, but it was good. It was real good. That's how my wife feels when I eat Mediterranean. I have to come home and I eat too much garlic. Yep. It's like, I'm like, I'm, I'm sleeping alone for at least a couple of days. <laughs> I did a television show for AMC. It only lasted one season. It was starring David Schwimmer and um, Jim Sturgis, and it was called Feed the Beast. It was about these two guys, one being an ex-con, who decide to open the first high-end restaurant in the Bronx and just all the exploits that they get into. And I remember we were doing a table read, and one of the characters said something to the effect of, you want to open a high-end restaurant in the Bronx, that makes about as much sense as opening a high-end restaurant in Detroit. And I was like, ooh, I don't know about that. And so I went up to the... Yeah, I went up to the director, and this was in 2016. And so I went to the writer, actually. I obviously wasn't going to call him out in front of everybody, but I, I went to the writer privately afterwards, and I said, I understand what you're trying to say in this, but I don't think that Detroit is a good example because... What's going on in Detroit right now is that Detroit is actually having this massive surge in in wonderful restaurants, and there are there are some really high end uh, restaurants in Detroit. And if you go to you know the London Chop House or like one of the many places that had opened even just in the last few years at that time, I said you know just do a little bit of reading and you'll see that Detroit is. Pro, like you're going to look like you don't know what you're talking about if you say that. And so he came back to me the next day and he said, I'm so glad that you put that on my radar because you're right. We would have looked like such idiots if we had said that. And so they used some other 
I don't know, like Pittsburgh or something like that, which I don't know anything about the Pittsburgh food scene. So maybe Pittsburgh has a thriving food food scene as well. And I'm just not in tune with it. Uh, but I was very proud of myself for being able to save Detroit from once again being a punchline of somebody's ill-conceived joke. On behalf of all of Detroit, we thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. So, all right. Well, let's let's talk about mittens for Detroit. Tell tell everyone what it is exactly the the organization because it's still going strong now. I know you have, you stepped away a couple years ago and handed over the reins, but it it was it's still going. So tell tell everyone this amazing thing that you started. So um, it was in October of 2010. I was actually handing out candy with my cousin, who is uh, her name is Kathy Moss, and she is. A, a pediatric nurse in um, Southfield. And we were handing out Halloween candy and these two young girls came to the door and one of the girls was crying and shivering and clutching a bare hand. And my, and Kathy said, oh, are you crying because you're cold? And, you know, my, I, I'm ashamed to say it now, but, you know, at the time I was like, oh, don't ask questions. Don't get involved. It's none of our business. You know, that kind of thing that I think is just way too prevalent in our American society of like not really wanting to be the person that stands up and speaks up. And that was most certainly me and that moment of, you know, don't get involved. And girls like, yes, it is. And Kathy said, well, why don't you guys come in and get warm, invited the girls and their mom inside. And the mom, you know, it wasn't that the girl didn't have a glove. It's that her glove had, you know, fallen apart or whatever, or something was going on with the lining. The mom was trying to get it fixed. And, the and Kathy got a spare pair of gloves, put them on the girl's hand, and you know, kind of rubbed her hands together and gave her a hug and a piece of candy. And instantly, I saw this family go from being distraught and upset and cold and just having a really terrible Halloween to being able to go out and enjoy the rest of their evening with warm hands and and happiness and and also to make a connection with a stranger and to know that there are kind people willing to do really what wasn't even that big of a deal. And I was crying. I was so moved. And Kathy goes, what the hell is wrong with you? I just gave her a spare pair of gloves. And I said, but that's the thing. It was so simple and so beautiful. And I want to do more of that. I want to get gloves and give them to people who need them. That was kind of just this nagging thing that kept just kept gnawing at me. And then the next day I just started calling people and saying, I have this idea, but I have no idea how, I, I don't know. I don't even know how I'd begin, how I would even start to do it. And, you know, a lot of people had their own visions and their own ideas. And ultimately I put together this band of people who were like, well, I can help build a website and I can do PR and I can do, you know, I can help you get boxes and you can put a collection box in my store. And, by the time I by the time I left in February of 2011, we had collected and given out almost 10,000 pairs of gloves. Then when Detroit Wind 87 got canceled, I had the I had a decision to make of okay, well, I'm now unemployed and you know I, I don't have a reason to be in Detroit or coming back to Detroit other than the fr- friendships that I've made and the family that I had discovered and technically almost been adopted by. And I, but I also knew that there was a big problem, especially at that time where there's this sort of savior complex of Hollywood where people will come in and they'll fall in love with an area and then they'll go, Oh, I want to help out while I'm here. And then they leave and they kind of forget 
that, you know, there's those problems still exist. And the problem, obviously, I wasn't in any way capable of or attempting to fix Detroit's problems. I don't want it to come off like that. But I did know that what we were doing was good. And I knew that what we were doing was appreciated, not just by the people who were receiving the gloves, but also by people who uh, were able to feel like they were in some small way making a difference. You know, it was, uh, remember, this was 2010. And so the, we, were in, we were in the midst of the Great Recession and people didn't necessarily have a lot of disposable income to create the kind of big changes that they maybe wanted to, but they wanted to feel some sense of, um, like of, of altruism and to be able to help people in some way. And really, I, I looked at it as I'm just being a conduit of goodwill. I'm giving people a, a cost a, a low cost but very rewarding way of being able to provide an essential need in in a in a really hard time and i don't think that anyone should suffer with freezing to death or even you know children coming to school and having their hands so crippled by the cold because they don't have a pair of gloves that it takes half an hour before they have the ability to grip a pencil or people who are unfortunately, you know, in transition and don't ha- currently have a stable living space that they should in addition to the indignities that go with that also be at risk of frostbite or or being unable to 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 function because they're so focused on the cold of their hands you know or a family that is looking to try to figure out hey what are we going to spend the little amount of money that we have on are we going to spend it on groceries are we going to spend it on food and you know they shouldn't have to worry about gloves that's such a simple thing and to me it seemed like um just a no-brainer and also the reason why we said only new gloves, new unused gloves with tags on them or handmade gloves like knit or whatever, upcycled gloves, is because there's something really valuable about being able to have something that is new and is all your own. And for families who live either in poverty or near poverty, that is a luxury that a lot of those children just don't have. And we take for granted the po- the process of buying something new, taking the tag off, throwing it away, and you know putting it on. But if every piece of clothing you've ever worn in your life has been worn by someone else before you, that is a beautiful process. And and it and it was really so rewarding to visit centers where I'd get to work with some of our senior members of society or little kids who don't even know which fingers go in which holes yet, um, or going to Michigan Veterans Foundation and meeting some of the veterans and talking to them about their service and finding out maybe that you know somebody was stationed in the same place that my dad was stationed in when he was in the Air Force. There were so many really rewarding experiences that I had. And it not only gave me a chance to get to know, you know certain members of the um, how do I say this? You know, the hoi polloi of Detroit, <laughs> but also getting to see members of the Detroit community that had fallen on hard times and to to see the pride that they had 
in their city, that spirit of Detroit of always picking themselves up and continuing to move forward for another day and the and the deep appreciation for 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 the kindness and the simplicity of just seeing another person. And it really changed a lot, you know, like I said, I'm like I said earlier, uh, that I was embar- that I am embarrassed that there was a time that I didn't want to get involved and just sort of let, you know, mind your own business kind of attitude. And, and I, a lot of that changed um, my entire feelings of um, the homeless, ep- homelessness epidemic, the you know mental health issues that also plague uh, c- communities that are in poverty, um, a lot of the racial barriers to success that people suffer and the indignities that go along with those and so many of the injustices you know we it's I learned a lot about poverty I learned a lot about so many of the privileges that I am incredibly blessed to have and I also learned that because of those privileges and because of the opportunity that I have I realized that if you are someone who is fortunate enough that through whatever form that takes whether it's entertainment or sports or comedy, which is also part of entertainment, of course, or politics, you know, if you have a platform that allows your voice to be heard, you have a societal obligation to use that voice to amplify the voices of those who are not being heard. And when I was in Detroit, I had the luxury of being on a TV show that was about Detroit. So everywhere we went, people would listen to what we had to say. And so I was like, if people are going to be listening, I want to make sure that I'm not saying something stupid. I want to make sure that I'm telling people about the Michigan Veterans Foundation or Latino Family Services, uh, the Ruth Ellis Center for uh, LGBTQ teens, you know, or Covenant House of Michigan, you know, talking about these organizations that are really doing great work. I mean, all I was doing was getting mittens. You know, these people are every single day working to provide for people that just need a little help. So it's definitely something that, you know, I'm proud of. Um, I, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm no longer in any way connected or involved with the organization, which is sad, but you know, there were circumstances at the time I was going through cancer treatment and I saw the organization going in a direction that it was, was just not the way that I envisioned the organization. Um, And it ultimately came down to me having to focus on what was important for my mental health as well as my physical health while I was going through through treatment. So I hope that the organization continues and I hope I mean I, I left with with them. I said, you guys have my blessing to keep moving forward, but um, unfortunately I just don't have the I don't have the strength to keep doing this in the way that I would want to. So um, but you know it opened the door for me to be able to come back home and for me to now work with cancer organizations here in Los Angeles. So I've been on the board of um, an organization called Cancer Free Generation, which is a young professional's arm of Tower Cancer Research Foundation. And we we raise money for um, researchers who are doing early stage cancer research. And that has been incredibly fulfilling. And, you know, I feel like every chapter moves into another chapter and it all sort of worked out exactly the way that it was supposed to. You have such a, um, a big heart and it's, yeah, you, you don't, you made such a big difference, such a big difference and it does continue. And 
I think I think that I think when you when you said like, well, your first reaction was to not do something. I think that's what sets people apart. It's everyone has that feeling, I think, at first. But it's the people that make a real difference are the ones that push through that and and do something anyway and and really give of their time, which you did, which is amazing. Well, and and, and speaking of giving of their time, as did you, you know, when we called and said, hey, we're doing this comedy show and, you know, I'm I'm sure that you probably make a lot of money, but we don't have a lot of money to give you. You were like, I don't care. I'll do it. When can I be there? And and I think that when someone such as yourself is willing to give your talent, that's also such an incredible thing. Because we reach out to a lot of comedians and there were a lot of people that we would have loved to have come, but there was a there, there were certain people that just attached a price tag to it that regardless of what it was benefiting, they weren't really interested. So I, I thank you so much for seeing the value of what Mittens for Detroit was doing and, and for volunteering your time. Well, thank you. But I do remember I had two, two asks. I asked for a signed copy of your movie, Bitch Slap. <laughs> and I asked you to follow me on Twitter, which apparently in 2014 was very important to me. Oh, and, uh, in 2014, I was like, yeah, yeah. you got to get those Twitter followers up. Yeah. I understand. So I did as much as I gave, I did have some demands that came with it. And uh, you did, you, you, you gave me both. I, I have my signed copy and pitch slap right here. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm following you because I see your stuff. There you are. Yes, there you are. You follow me. Oh my God. Why am I not following you? Oh my God. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> I know that I was following you at one point. I know I was. Well, I know that we're friends on Facebook. I know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, we're best pals. Is have you beat the cancer? Um, I like to think that uh, my doctors beat the cancer, but so far um, I don't have any reason to think that I still have it. So I will. I, I'm taking it one day at a time, like an alcoholic. So far, I don't have cancer, and I will hopefully keep it that way. Well, God bless you. I hope it stays that way. the The one question that I do ask everyone, and, and just to um, kind of get it back to. Uh, Aaron Cummings actress is like, what are, what are the three must watch? <laughs> like if you tell people, oh, you got to check these out of me, like what, what are they? Well, I would say right now only because it's so timely and because we want to promote the stuff that's happening right now is I guess the most recent must watch would be episode two of the recent season of Lucifer, the one that just came out recently. So that's uh, season five, episode two. I play a uh, a researcher who is working on sending people to Mars and she has some insecurity issues. So that was a, an interesting character for me to get to play. And also like my Instagram following has jumped up a notch from all of the Lusa fans out there, which was pretty cool. And Leslie Ann Brandt, who plays Maze, for any of the Lusa fans out there that might be listening, she's one of my best friends. We were, we were, we didn't work together on Spartacus. We were in the same season of Spartacus, but we didn't have any scenes together. I played Sura, the wife of Spartacus. She played uh, Navia, who was Lucretia's slave. And uh, even though we didn't have any scenes together, we became fast friends. And thankfully, in a time well before Instagram, we got into quite a few hijinks in New Zealand. So uh, she and I, 
she and I are still very good friends and our husbands have become good friends. And so we hang out with each other quite a bit. And we thought that it was going to be the last season of of, of Lucifer. So she was like, oh, I need you to be on this show. And thankfully, the casting director had cast me in um, another project before. So it was kind of an easy sell, thankfully. So I, I would say, first of all, Lucifer, for sure. Um, anyone who is a fan of um, grindhouse style films and has a nice sense of humor, which you, Jeff, definitely do, I would recommend one of your favorites, Bitch Slap. Uh, Make sure to watch it with tongue planted firmly in cheek. We are in on all the jokes. Trust me, we get it. We're laughing along with you. It is supposed to be uh, ridiculous bordering on the absurd. We get it. And that's why we did it. And then I'm trying to think, you know, I would say for the third one, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, there's an episode that I did of a TV show called Cold Case. It was on CBS like 10 years ago, 15, 15 years ago, I want to say. I shot the episode in, 20, in 2008. And, um, and I think it was one of their last seasons. And I played a pinup model who gets murdered. But in the episode, like the way that Cold Case worked, unlike CSI or some of the other crime whodunit things, if you are the victim you are essentially the star of that episode because they do an entire backstory and half the episode is them trying to solve this cold case that was never solved. And the other half of the story is actually the telling of how the crime happened and the story of the person involved in the crime. And that was, if you can find it, the pinup girl episode of cold case, you actually see me falling in love with acting. It was my first big guest star. And I just remember the unbelievable joy that I had waking up every morning and getting to go onto the lot at Warner Brothers and put on the beautiful costumes and getting, you know, getting a, put in the wig and the period makeup. Um, and it was just, it was just a dream. It was, it was exactly what I imagined that Hollywood actresses get to do. And it was just wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And I love watching it because I see myself just in pure unadulterated joy as an actor. That's so. awesome that you can look back and just see that happening. That's yeah, so cool. yeah, and I and I like sharing that with people because it's just uh, it's fun. It's it's a fun one. Yeah, it's a it's a really good episode, and I think that um, it's a good display of of little Aaron Cummings showing off. <laughs> Speaking of sharing with people, uh, tell everyone your Twitter and Instagram handle so they. Can oh yes, it. I would love for people to come visit me on Twitter and Instagram at. Aaron L. Cummings, E-R-I-N-L is in Lynn, Cummings with an S. Um, my Instagram is a little bit more of a shameless self-promotion, uh, although I never know what to put on Instagram. It's like, I just feel like it's so awkward and I, I'm not very good at selfies. So I try to post like once every three or four days, but I'm just terrible. I feel like I need, I need, to, I need to hire someone to take proper pictures because otherwise I have 800 selfies just to find one that's decent. And then my Twitter, um, I, uh, and I am unfortunately highly political. I'm trying not to be, but it's just so hard these days. So if you go on my Twitter and you don't like what I have to say, feel free to just not follow me, but I'm trying not to engage in, in drama on Twitter anymore. I'm like, stop feeding the trolls. Stop it. 
Well, I love your Twitter and we're politically minded. So that's probably why. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I tend to get a little heated sometimes. So, uh, uh, and, and, but I'm also like, you know what, if I see something on Twitter that somebody posts that I don't agree with, like, I'm not going to go after them. I'll just unfollow them. And it's so simple. Like, why do you bother arguing? Like, we're not going to have a proper argument. I'll have, I would love to sit down and have coffee with someone who disagrees with me as long as they're willing to not escalate it to name calling and insanity. But if someone can just sit down and have an intelligent conversation with me and they disagree with me, I'm all for that. But I'm, I'm, there's no sense in trying to argue with someone in 180 characters. It's just dumb. You know, we're never going to be able, I'm never going to be able to explain fully my um, opinion. Although I think that there was one, there was one time actually though, there was one time somebody said, well, why do you think this? And I kind of argued my point and the person just came back and said, you know what? You make a lot of valid points and uh, I concede. I was like, wait, what? You concede? That's something that can happen on Twitter? I never knew. You found a unicorn, Aaron. You found a unicorn. If you are not, if you are willing to unfollow me, if you don't like what I have to say and not try to argue with me, please come and follow me um, at Aaron L. Cummings. And, uh, and, uh, and if you have something nice to say, please do that as well. Because everybody likes to say, everybody likes to hear nice things. And I will certainly respond to that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I can't thank you enough. It was great catching up. It was yeah, so much fun. Yeah, it was really nice. And um and and I would love to to make this a, a regular catch up every, you know, how many years has it been since we've seen yeah, every six so in two in two thousand and twenty-six. I'll look forward to chatting again. I'm writing down on my calendar right now. Twenty twenty-six. Call Aaron. All right. Oh, there we perfect. go. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been really great. And I um and I'm now that I'm officially following you, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed that I wasn't officially before. I hope that when all of this COVID craziness is over, that your talents can bring you out to Los Angeles and I will gather up all of my friends and we will come and support you. And the next time that I'm in Detroit or in the Michigan area, I will uh, look up when you're going to be on stage and I'll come and support you then too. Cause I think you are, I think you are quite hilarious. Thank you, Aaron. And when you're in Detroit, we'll also grab an American Coney. Yes, we will. (laughs) We'll see you then, then. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. All right. Well, how fun was that? That was so cool. And hope you're really, really hungry right now for a Coney dog straight from Detroit. If you don't know what we're talking about, Google it. I'm not talking about a hot dog with chili, folks. Get the real deal. All right. Well, that conversation got me really hungry so i found a hashtag from hashtag roundup you know we love them you know we love them here called make a movie of foodie with our friend brie wander it's a friday game on hashtag roundup check out hashtag roundup on twitter at hashtag roundup also download the hashtag roundup app get notified anytime a fun game starts and one of your tweets might end up on the jeff dewaskin show how exciting would that be all right well let's take a look at hashtag make a movie of foodie this is a a movie food mashup game all the tweets are going to be at Jeff Dewaskin Show. You can retweet them yourself. You can follow those tweeters, and they'll also be in the show notes so you can check out these funny folks. All right, here we go. At hashtag make a movie of foodie. One flew over the couscous nest. <laughs> Bake to the future. The saute, your old virgin. 
Diet Another Day. That's the classic James Bond movie coming out soon. The Count of Monte Bisto. Yes, eat, pray, eat, love, eat. Catch a Tory if you can. The classic Leo DiCaprio movie by <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Raging Bullion. <laughs> Fondue the Right Thing. Fifty Shades of Gravy. No charcuterie for old men. Reservoir Hot Dogs. Twelve Hangry Men. <laughs> All right. That's what you call a food and movie mashup. There you go. Join in on the fun at Hashtag Roundup. And thank you for joining us for episode 22, the episode that brought you Aaron Cummings, the history of Coney Dogs, and so much more. Follow us, subscribe, like, tell your friends all about the Jeff Jawaskin Show. We want to be world famous. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.